This old porch is just a long time waiting and forgetting and remembering the coming back, not crying about the leaving, and remembering the falling down and the laughter and curse of luck from all them sons of bitches said we'd never get back up. It's good stuff. Welcome. I'm Jim McGinnis, and this is Stories We Can Tell. And what you were just listening to were some lines from a great song written by Lyle Lovett and Robert Earl Keane. Two Texas boys who always have the ear of this Floridian. And there you have it. A Texas intro for a story about Savannah. Hope you like it. pretty to be sitting here, Francis Quinn said to his faithful companions. How about a walk? Both dogs ran to the screen door at the very sound of the word. Quinn grabbed the leashes and off they went. It was a lovely evening and the Irishman who lived across the street was taking down the flag. He stopped and laughed at the sight of Quinn being pulled down the driveway. Who's walking who, Francis? Quinn laughed at himself. Well behaved, don't you think? Donegan the male barked hello. He was a charming old chocolate lab who readily expressed himself at every turn. Kids of all ages loved him, and he loved them back. The two men exchanged Christmas talk and other pleasantries. Making the trip this year, asked Quinn. For the past five or six years, the old man had made the journey to Ireland, where his parents were born. You betcha. I gotta get this knee in shape, though. Better start walking yourself. Oh, I plan on it, said the old man. As long as it doesn't get cold. Anything below 60 sent him into hibernation. The arthritis flared and he could be seen only to raise and lower the flag along with heading in and out for morning mass. Quinn smiled and shook his head. Well, make sure you say hello to my ancestors when you go. Then he started his walk. Quinn thought about heading over to Ireland many times, but his plans never quite took shape. He always found an excuse not to go. His travels usually ranged from the Carolina mountains to the Keys. When anyone asked him about going to Ireland, he would say, no, I'm afraid I won't come back. The response, of course, made no sense whatsoever. It was getting close to dusk as they made their way through the neighborhood. He looked up at the faint blue above him. There was a ribbon of orange stretching along the western horizon. The ancient oaks were silhouettes now, framing the floor sky. There were parts of the old neighborhood that were run down, junk cars and unattended yards. As Quinn turned the corner, he saw the same two characters sitting beneath the Brazilian pepper tree. He waved politely, but they both stared straight ahead. No matter, he thought. What a beautiful night. He whistled a Jimmy Buffett ballad as the three wound their way through the streets of Old Melbourne. He could hear the words in his head, nobody speaks to the captain no more, nobody talks about the war. As they strolled down the street, a man on a bike approached them, pedaling slowly. He was a haggard looking fellow, Quinn guessed that he might be in his mid-thirties. For whatever reason, the man rode fairly close to them, 
Brown Dog was not thrilled with bicycles anyway, and he growled as the rider passed. Shut up, said the guy as he rode by. Quinn stopped and looked over his shoulder. Don't tell my dog to shut up, he said in a calm voice. When the rider turned around and came quickly towards him, Quinn didn't wait. Holding both leashes in his left hand, he rushed the bike, cuffing the man under the chin with his right, knocking him to the ground. What the hell, the guy yelled as he picked himself off the pavement. Both dogs were barking furiously, and Quinn strained to hold him back. Move along, son, or I will finish this. Quinn could feel his blood pumping. He led the dogs away, but as he turned the corner, the man yelled, we'll see what the cops say about this. Let's see what the hospital has to say first, Quinn said, as he again moved toward the man. But he got on his bike and pedaled away. It's okay, pups. We're not going to let some asshole spoil our walk. Both dogs looked back a few times as they headed down the street. Shadow, the female, looked up at Quinn as if to ask him if things were all right. Don't worry, black dog, he said to Shadow, reaching down to give her a pet. Soon they were bouncing along, carefree and curious again. Quinn gazed up and saw the moon. Waxing gibbous, he said to himself. He began to relax again, soaking in the evening. But in the back of his mind was the man on the bike, and he decided to turn toward home. If the guy had any sense at all, he'd realize that he had it coming. But Quinn couldn't count on that. Dolls were good judges of character, and Donegan didn't like him from the get-go. I guess I should have kept on wa walking. What do you think, dogs? Buffett came back to him. He was a fugitive with a pseudo name, lost his mind in a hurricane. Coconut upside his head, some folks say. He'd be better dead. Quinn wasn't too worried, and he sure didn't feel any remorse. If the police were looking for him, he'd be easy to find. 6'3", 220, gray beard, Vietnam veteran ball cap, wearing cargo shorts and flip-flops. Walking two Labrador retrievers, how many fit that description in this neighborhood? He also knew how the law worked, and he certainly didn't want trouble from that end. Time to change. It was hard for a man to stand up for himself these days without getting into a world of shit. Quinn thought it would be wise to make himself scarce. This might be a good time to see Savannah, guys. How about it? The dog seemed agreeable. He had been planning a road trip all week, so he got on the computer and looked up the number of the dog-friendly comfort inn on Bay Street. It was only a five-hour drive. He packed up a few days of clothes and some food for the dogs. By nine o'clock, they were headed toward I-95. There was no need to let anyone know of his plans. He'd be back before they missed him. A thick blanket of fog lay on the Savannah River. Francis Quinn walked down the cobblestone road with a cup of hotel coffee, strolling along the water, passing no one. The weather was perfect for his mood. Music played in his pocket. 
He had already fed the dogs and taken them for a walk through Ellis and Johnson Squares. But before they headed home, Quinn decided to make a solo trek down River Street. I'll be right back, he told them, leaving them lounging in the hotel room. He could not get the man on the bike out of his mind, as hard as he tried. The outburst was a rare occurrence. The volatility that had surfaced that cool evening usually simmered deep within. If it did come out, it was usually directed at inanimate objects, lawnmowers, and water pumps. But there was that last, that time last spring when the drunk guy stepped out into the street and Quinn had to stop quickly. When the man started beating on his hood, Quinn was forced to respond. And then there was a intervention in a young couple squabble. Quinn wasn't thrilled with the boy's tone, but neither seemed to appreciate his chivalrous uh, reaction. Most guys in their 60s begin to mellow, but it seems old Quinn was going the opposite direction. Lately, his mantra of stand your ground was taking him to places he did not care to go. love Savannah. So many trips were simple stopovers, nights on the river before continuing to go somewhere else. But this was a solitary trip for a better look at things, Quinn told himself. He had nearly closed Kevin Barry's the night before, the Irish pub there on the river. Harry O'Donoghue had played well into the night. Quinn had enjoyed it a little too much, but his head was clearing now. The sight of a huge freighter cutting through the fog stopped him in his tracks. These giants came from all parts of the world, and Quinn stood staring. He was transfixed. A lone voice called through the mist, Merry Christmas! Quinn looked up and saw a waving sailor leaning on the railing of the big ship. He laughed and waved back, Merry Christmas indeed. His given name was Francis Tiernan Quinn, but most folks just called him by his last name. Some had taken playfully to call him Hag once in a while because of his relentless insistence on requesting Merle Haggard songs at local establishments. Play some Merle, goddammit, he'd shout, usually near the end of the evening. Regardless of the venue, wedding, wake, or night on the town, you could count on the call. But Merle never showed at the pub, only Harry with some great Irish songs. Quinn knew all the words. He had another week before returning to the classroom, but the sense of anticipation that had filled him for so long was missing. Quinn was feeling strangely indifferent about all that. After three and a half decades of teaching and coaching, the word retirement started coming up in conversation all too often. Retirement to Quinn seemed to sound an awful lot like relegation, to be placed upon a shelf or to be put out in a pasture. Who the hell knows, he said out loud. Who the hell knows? He sensed a change in the way people saw him, perhaps in the way he saw himself. Frank Quinn had spent so many days going upstream, 
and now he found himself fighting to hold on to that backward motion. Savannah was waking up now. Delivery trucks of all sorts made the slow trek down River Street. Quinn stopped to listen to the sounds of business, then walked some more, thinking of days to come, of classes full of sophomores back in Florida waiting for the rest of the story, or the two new groups of seniors entering Florida studies, and then of the group of misfits and castoffs who greeted him each afternoon, bringing Quinn yet another challenge. But there were times when he looked out on those kids and he saw himself. He sat down on the bench, opened up his notebook, and read some earlier writings. Quinn ran his fingers over the words as if they were strange to him, something unfamiliar. He turned the page and continued reading. teacher once asked him if he were there was anything else he had wanted to be aside from a ball player I figured this is what I was supposed to be Quinn replied that's not what I asked you she said boldly he told her that he had wanted to write but had lacked the discipline at the same time Quinn insisted that he had no regrets no feelings of sacrifice for choosing to be a teacher I haven't given up anything even on the worst days, things were better than anything else I could have done. That wasn't completely true, but it sure sounded good. Teaching and coaching had been, for a long time, the only thing he knew. Well, that and frame carpentry and a little boatmanship. But like his ego, his expertise with a hammer was slowly waning. He did love writing, and over the past few years, it had consumed his free time. Quinn spent early mornings and late evenings writing bad poetry and rough prose. Nothing much came of it, but he kept working the words. Bob Dylan was playing on his phone in his pocket now. It was the soundtrack from Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, and the haunting sound of the six-string reminded Quinn the Romantic that there were still revolutions to fight. Small ones, but revolutions just the same. Dylan's sound took him back to the closing scene of an old movie. A young Mexican-American was returning home to Texas after serving in the Spanish War. An acoustic guitar played slowly as the lone rider crossed the southern plain. Quinn sat back on the bench now and closed his eyes, cultivating some romantic notion of a highwayman. Was there some thread between the outlaw, the rebel, and the teacher? Not hardly, but he liked to think that there was. There was only so much space between him and men with guitars, he thought. Maybe. They were all purveyors of truth, and there was something liberating, if not revolutionary, about truth. But what would Jim Harrison and Howard Zinn say about Quinn's version of the truth? Voices inside him reminded Quinn of times when he'd fallen short. Speaking of Harrison, the last thing he had read before heading north was part of a novella called Tracking, a reflective biographical piece that he finished off late Christmas night. It was a curious choice since he had devoted much of his recent attention to stories of old Florida. But Harrison caught hold of him, 
one evening and would not let him go. The writer had described the comical arrogance present in so many artists, and Quinn found such a thing to be alive and well inside of him and his fellow teachers. A tinge of the small town carnival barker who felt he should be with Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey. Most teachers, of course, weren't after notoriety and acclaim, but many possessed an absurd belief that drove them to try to become that teacher who changed everything. He knew that down deep that his desire to make sparks fly around the heads of his students was what made the difference. Maybe I'm just a carnival barker, he said, as he tried to get along with it all, laughing and hoping that the humility would offer him some clarity. Part of me feels like I'm just getting started, he had written in his journal. Year by year, he tried to eliminate the trappings, the obstacles and barriers between him and pure teaching. He was determined to teach what needed to be taught, to do what needed to be done, to try to reach who needed to be reached. First, of course, he had to get out of his own way. Maybe his ego was in fact waning, but there was still plenty left to trip over. This was necessary as a part of his journey down to become the very least. He gazed out across the river towards South Carolina and thought about his grandpa. Sullivan Ballard was his name. He was part engineer, part artist, who led his family through many dark days of poverty with a spirit of improvisation. There's that word again. His grandfather was a very gifted man who is said to have been able to do just about anything. His creativity bloomed despite the hard times of the Great Depression. It seemed that a select number of family members had inherited his gift, and through the generations it had manifested itself in many different ways. I was born wanting to draw, his cousin once said, and so it goes. There are painters, sculptors, musicians, and carpenters, engineers, architects, and ballet dancers. Some sing in the churches, some sing in the bars, and oh yeah, there's a poet or two. Creativity courses through the veins of so many in the family. It's a way of life. His cousin's son is a welder who makes elaborate sculptures in his spare time. They are piano and guitar players, songwriters, Irish step dancers, and graduates of the fine arts. Another of Quinn's cousins took the inheritance one step further. His passion translated into activism. A talented artist, architect, and musician in his own right, Johnny devoted himself to nurturing the arts in the community. He repurposed an historic church in an effort to keep talented young people in his hometown. It provided free access to a studio for local artists. He also holds performances for songwriters and musicians from across the South. Quinn thought of Johnny, his grandfather, and everybody in between. It felt good to be part of something larger. He seldom pondered the nature of his own creative pen and intoxication with words. He believed that poetry helped him teach, especially through rhythms and cadences, and of course it affected the way he perceived the world. For so long, Quinn was on the receiving end of art, but as a teacher, he had tried to push his students toward their creative sides. Quinn liked to show them a uh, cut from Dead Poets Society, where Robin Williams quotes Walt Whitman 
talking about how the noble professions are necessary to sustain life, but it was art, poetry, beauty, and passion that make life worth living. And even though some corporations stole it for a commercial, Whitman's voice can still be heard. He walked over and bought himself another cup of coffee, then sat back down with his notebook. He read a somber entry he had made a few days before. You are not defined solely by your vocation or occupation. It cannot be all that you are. You are more than that. What in the hell does that mean, he shouted, ripping out the page and throwing it in the trash can beside the bench. He closed the notebook for a moment, then opened it up again and wrote a note in the margin. Yes, the past has forged me, shaped me, revealed me, but I'm not defined by it, just as I'm not destroyed or defeated by it. Shit. Quinn crumpled up that page and threw it in the trash, too. He smiled and shook his head. A conversation with Ted, his mentor, came to him from years back, shortly after Ted's retirement, when Quinn was first weighing his own future. Don't make too much of frost here, Francis, alluding to the line in Two Tramps at Mud Time. It's a wonderful thing to make a living doing what you love to do, but it doesn't have to define you. Wait a minute, you're the one who taught me that poem. Yeah, and I got it from your dad. I just wanted you to take pleasure in your work. It wasn't intended to become some measure of happiness. There's no rule saying that you have to do just one thing. Ted Johnson possessed what Harrison called a child's likeness, a gift of age. Harrison said that it became easy to discard self-importance and do as you wish. Lately, Quinn thought he could feel the likeness setting in, but after reading those last two shitty excerpts from his journal, he began to doubt it. He thumbed through the spiral notebook, stopping at a few lines in red. Legendary Pittsburgh Steelers coach Chuck Knoll had once told his aging quarterback that perhaps it was time for him to get on with his life's work. Quinn was pretty young at the time, and he remembered being angered by the quote. Life's work? Terry Bradshaw had four Super Bowl rings. How's that for life's work? But Ted saw it as profound, quoting Hausman from a booth in the Apollo Diner, something about the name dying before the man. Quinn didn't get it then, but once the trophies found the attic, he came to understand. He looked down at the flip-flops on his feet and said out loud, maybe it's time I got on with my life's work. That conversation with Ted had wandered through Shakespeare quotes and movie lines. They both traded recollections of Lonesome Dove, the epic of epic western of years ago. That's a great story, Quint said. You know, I loaned out my Mercury's book, but I can't remember who to. I still have the movie, though. Well, maybe it's time you sat down and watched it again, Ted suggested, reminding Quinn of the bar scene in San Antonio. What? I need to whack a surly bartender for dawdling service? His mentor laughed and sipped his coffee. Gus was mad, Francis, because no one remembered him. Ouch. So that's me, Quinn asked. Ted just smiled. 
went inside and repeated a familiar line, Vanity, my favorite sin. He did have a way of getting caught up in his own self-awareness. Get out of your own head, he'd tell himself, as if he was coaching a hitter in the batting cage. He had read somewhere that self-knowledge is in fact a mixed blessing, essential for writing and teaching for that matter, but there were times when Quinn could find himself standing right in the slop. He knew how to get away from it, to suppress it at least, by taking boat rides with dogs and grandchildren, spending days at the ball field, or losing himself among 30 curious but goofy high school kids. But the voice was always there, whispering. During their conversation, Quinn told Ted about a homily his priest gave that really hit home. It was about being self-consumed, he said. Made me feel like walking away once and for all. It's not me, Ted. This is not the person I wanted to be. Come on, Francis. It's the Irish in you, Ted answered reassuringly. But I'm skeptical about your motives. And you don't need a priest to look in the damn mirror. Ted was as virtuous a man as anyone Quinn ever knew. But he wasn't much for getting on his knees. He didn't care a whole lot for what we call public religions. He preferred the private ones. Listen to your inner voice, Francis, as you always have. You're a good teacher because you are consumed. Writing is the same, I figure. But a man can't be consumed by his job. He must be consumed by his own integrity. He must be committed to his students to teach them how to think for themselves. Do his job well and leave it at that. Leave it at that, Quinn said to himself, and then he got up from the bench and walked again. He walked all the way to the statue of the waving girl and turned around. The fog was lifting and so was his mood. He saw two more cargo ships on the way, but heard no holiday greetings. Before he made his way up to the hotel to pack up, Quinn turned and looked eastward down River Street taking in one last glimpse of Savannah before leaving. The two-day excursion had at the very least reminded him of how much he loved this place. He picked up a small stone as a souvenir and put it in his pocket. Before his next cup of coffee, he'd be crossing the St. Mary's River into Florida, heading home and to all points south. <laughs>